Hello and welcome back to Senior Living Simplified. I am your host, Christina Hodak, and I'm glad to be back in the studio. We took a few months off uh, for the holidays, for summer, to just kind of relax. And now we're trending into fall. And oftentimes when the seasons change, it reminds us of new to-do lists to take care of. And what better time to take care of some really important documents that a lot of us neglect for a very long time than right now. It's fall. The changing in the seasons are happening. It's time to think about the time ahead that we have. So I have invited Jasmine Dotson. She is an attorney at law, elder care um, specialty, and she is going to talk to us about some documents that are crucial for us to have in place. A lot of people think that these documents need to happen later than they actually should. In fact, I need to get mine in check too, so we have to make that appointment still. Definitely. But Jasmine, thank you very much for coming and being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on the show and the opportunity to kind of explain a little bit about some just basic estate planning documents. Yeah, so you want to start out by maybe telling us like your journey. How did you, when you were a little girl, did you always <laughs> dream of being an elder care and estate planning attorney? <laughs> you know, it would be nice if it was that simple, but um, when I was a little kid, I was a true little kid. I just enjoyed being a kid. I had no aspirations other than watching Saturday cartoons and eating cereal. Um, I actually grew up with my grandparents owning a funeral home. So it was kind of like the My Girl situation where we uh, they lived on top and the funeral home was on the bottom. And my grandmother was, uh, I mean, she's classic Betty, just <laughs> um, owned the room and anytime um, there was a funeral or anything that we happened to be around for, I kind of watched her and how she provided care for people that were in kind of a sensitive situation. And so um, in negotiating the practice of law, I first figured out all the things I didn't want to do. That happens, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, when I got into probate and estate planning, I really kind of felt a passion for it because I was able to kind of one, be there for people in a time of need and offer them legal advice and comfort after a loved one had passed away. And then in estate planning, I'm kind of there uh, before that happens and able to provide people with peace of mind so that they know um, kind of that their assets are going to be taken care of and that their family is going to be taken care of when they're no longer around. It is really important, and I think you know, some there's a certain segment of people that think that these documents magically appear <laughs> at, at end of life, and they're just there waiting for you, and then there's another set of the population that gets some of it, but not all of it, because, I mean, in all honesty, there's a ton of things you could do, and we could all be uber prepared, but at least if we can have, like, the essentials ready it takes that burden off of it having to come from our families right you know this is a really kind of a heavy topic right essentially we're planning for our death and what's going to happen after that so it, it, not yeah. a great conversation that most people like to have so do you think that may be why a lot of people postpone it 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I've dealt with people who are um, the ones who are like Boy Scouts, always prepared. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other people that are just like, it's going to be like 52 card pickup once I die. Just throw it up in the air and see what <laughs> happens. Um, but I tell people, I say it is a heavy topic, but the first step is to give yourself permission. You know, give yourself permission to say, this is the day that we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about it. Give yourself a specific time frame. Mm -hmm. Just say, you know, for these next four hours or two hours or one hour, we're going to sit down and I give myself permission to think about the end. And that's all it is. Yeah, and it's thinking about the end, but, you know, to take the morbidity out of it, you're not thinking about your end. You're more thinking about your family so that they don't have to think about all of these things that are happening, whether you're ready for it or not, when they're in such an emotional time, because you've already done the legwork or you participated in that and took that four hours out of your weekend, you know, that time long ago to think about these items. So, you know, there's two things that we all have to do in life. And I bet everybody knows what they are, right? You've all heard it. We have to pay taxes and die. That's what everybody does. Now, some people can skirt the paying the t of the taxes. I don't <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> you should definitely do that. That is not that is not legal advice. That is not legal <laughs> advice. I'm just saying it's out there. <laughs> but nobody is going to get away from uh, death. So, it's true. Just yeah deal with it, have stuff in place. And luckily we have you here with us today. And so you're going to be able to talk about, like I said, there's several documents, but we can at least talk about five yes. that would get people in a really good place. And these are five documents that most people don't have altogether. Right. Or if some people have them, they may be an outdated version of the document, yeah. or it may be the incorrect form that they've used for the document. So even though you take the time to do these documents, if you don't have an attorney review it and evaluate it, then sometimes the documents that have been prepared, like I said, they may either be outdated or just invalid. Yeah, absolutely true. And I see that a lot in my profession with, you know, sitting with families that are moving uh, their loved one into, you know, one of our assisted living or memory care communities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are conflicting documents because wouldn't you believe that there are multiple siblings sometimes in a scenario and one sibling has one version of this mm -hmm. document and the other one has a different version. So I also would like to just throw out there, we are located in Texas. Uh, fortunately, we kind of have a national following now, which is <laughs> nice, but Amazing. I do want to emphasize that we are talking about things that apply to Texas law. So if you are watching or listening in a state other than Texas, please consult some, you know, another attorney in your state to make sure that the it's completely accurate because laws do vary a little bit from state to state. They do, they do. The crux of the documents that we're recommending should be um, pretty consistent nationwide, but any specificities that we're talking about are definitely Texas law related. Right. All right. Now that we have the legal out of the way and we are protected, we'll, <laughs> start, with, yeah, we'll start with the first document. And that is the power of attorney document or otherwise known as the POA. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about, is there only one type of power of attorney document? 
So there are typically two types of power of attorneys that come up. The first one is the uh, durable power of attorney or general power of attorney. It's the same document, different name. Um, the other document that comes up a lot is the medical power of attorney. Mm -hmm. So a durable power of attorney is what you want to give someone the authority to do to make business decisions for you, real estate transactions, and overall just kind of manage things for you if you are unable to do so for yourself. A medical power of attorney is the same thing, but for medical decisions. If you are unable to make me medical decisions for yourself, then you can appoint a person to make medical decisions for you. And when you're doing that in the scenario of um, my side of the aisle, if you are placing someone in assisted living or a memory care environment and you have medical power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Now we do provide you know, medical assistance, but our licensure is more residential, even though we do provide you know, ADL type care. Right. So if someone has medical power of attorney, would that give them the authority to sign on the behalf of someone if they're moving them in, if that resident isn't able, and I don't mean cognitively able necessarily, what if right. they're like just physically not there or they're out of state? So would medical power of attorney, or would they need the durable or general? So it sounds like it would be a contract for uh, a residence, almost like signing a lease on an apartment mm -hmm. or not necessarily purchasing a home, but it would be more of like a lease type situation, a contractual commitment. Mm -hmm. That would be more of a durable power of attorney because even though you are uh, providing some healthcare assistance, it's not really a healthcare decision yeah. that you need to make. A healthcare power of attorney would come up if there is a medical decision that needed to be made. So for your purposes, you would probably want them to have both and uh, generally, if the person is still uh, has capacity to sign a power of attorney and a medical power of attorney, it would probably be uh, more efficient for that to be the same person. So yeah. sometimes you want to have different people for your medical power of attorney or your durable power of attorney. And that just comes down to personal preference. But in a long-term care facility, you probably want that to be the same person so that you're only dealing with one person. Yeah, that can take some of the static out of different <laughs> situations, <laughs> certainly. Uh, but we are happy to deal with it if it is, you know, a different person, if that needs to be the case. So you mentioned having, you know, one person designated for these power of attorney documents. Is it possible to designate more than one person? And if so, how many people do you recommend? So my recommendation is one. My recommendation is just have one person to be able to make the decisions because, you know, in my practice, not only do we draft the documents, but we have occasion to use the documents. So there have been situations where a co-agent, where co-agents disagree with one another. And so if you have co-agents who disagree and a decision can't be made, then that's going to end up in a lawsuit or a court filing and leading a judge to make that decision. So if you have one person making the decision that you trust, then leave it in the hands of that person. Um, you can have as many co-agents as you want and they can act independently or you can require that the two of them have to make the decision together. And if that's the case and they don't agree, then that's where the static comes in. Have you 
seen them before or done them yourself before where they have like an alternate like you have one person that's supposed to be but what if they're out on vacation uh, would you recommend them having like an alternate in the event that that one person isn't available to make a decision absolutely we recommend um, naming your primary person and then listing at least two alternates because then okay. that way you don't have to keep coming back and modifying the document if something happens to one of your alternates. And you never know, life happens. Um, so sometimes the person that you designate may not be in a situation to serve in that capacity. So you wanna have multiple options available because if you don't have an option and there is a need, then that's where you end up again, back in court, which we try to avoid. Yeah, and what would you say would be a reason to kind of go back and review or renew those documents? Is it a time period? Should it be done based on just life events? How often should someone kind of look at their power of attorney? So with your power of attorney and your medical power of attorney, I don't think that those documents need to be modified as often as some of the other documents. What you want to make sure is uh, that the people that you have designated are number one, living, Good point. Yeah, that's a good qualifier. <laughs> um, if someone's passed away, you don't necessarily need to come back and do a modification because then you've identified your alternates. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with a medical power of attorney. So as long as you list a sufficient amount of alternates, then that's not a document that needs to be modified, but you do kind of want to take a look at the document maybe every five years or so just to make sure that there are no new laws that have changed oh. that affect the documents. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes something could come in place, like for example, a couple of years ago, the um, Texas legislature just added uh, the ability to include powers to amend uh, beneficiaries and change and create estate planning documents. So that's now something that can be included in a power of attorney. And I don't recommend that those boxes <laughs> become checked, uh, but that is something that a power of attorney now can do. Oh, well, I learned something new. Every time we're together, I learn something new around you. I, I love do that. too. All right. Well, then I think, is there anything else you want to add on the power of attorney before we kind of move on? Um, no, I, I think that we've pretty much covered all the basics of power of attorneys. I think so too. And I think if anybody has any further questions, we're going to give them your contact they information. Should. They should definitely the end, reach, and they should reach out, out to you. Yeah. So another document that I see very often in my line of work is the advance directive. Yes. So can you talk about what exactly the advance directive is? There are a lot of misconceptions uh, from what I have heard in my conversations with families, and I'm always happy to explain it, but then you get some people that are like, oh, no, I don't think that's what it is. So right, from right. You, yeah, yeah. And you and I had a really good discussion mm -hmm. about um, advance directives versus DNRs. Yeah. Um, so in advance directive, directive is essentially a document where you indicate whether or not you want to um, have ongoing treatment if you are in an irreversible or terminal condition. Now, let me try to parse that out. So if you are in a situation where you've uh, got a traumatic brain injury and you can't speak for yourself, mm -hmm. um, that and, and a doctor has stated that this is a terminal condition or an irreversible condition, 
and your family has to make a decision as to whether or not to keep you on life support, this is essentially your seat at the table. Um, I had a client once say, well, what if I cut off a finger? That's an irreversible condition. Can my wife pull the plug on me? <laughs> and I said, no, no. Don't give them that leverage. <laughs> no, the document is a little bit more uh, comprehensive than that because it says that if you are unable to make the decision. So, um, yeah, if you're unable to make a decision and you know you don't want your family members to make that decision, this is your chance to say in advance while you still have capacity yeah. what you desire to do in this situation. Take that burden off of them. Like it, you said, this is your seat at the table when you can't speak for yourself. Absolutely. So some examples of those life-threatening, it's like coming off of a ventilator, right? Correct, yes. And if you, um, you cannot... Uh, survive without it, mm -hmm. what is your choice? Right. Not that you're on it because you had a traumatic injury and they've got you on it so your body can recover necessarily, but this would be to sustain you for the rest of your life. Correct. And there could also be other things um, like feeding tubes that are placed as well. Some people are adamant that they don't want that. Some people, of course, want to. So those mm -hmm. are different uh, things. And then the one that's going to lead us into our next document, but we'll just hit on. The one thing that people get most confused about in my experience with the advanced directive is they think that it is a do not resuscitate or Correct. DNR form. So an advanced directive is not a do not resuscitate form. They are separate documents. You that can have correct. both. You don't have to have both. Right. You can have one or the other, but a, a DNR form is essentially when you're picked up from uh, paramedics and you are not breathing, your heart is stopped, a DNR form is what you would need in that situation mm -hmm. and you're instruct instructing them to not resuscitate you. Right. Yeah. So again, heavy topic. So very heavy, we're very going heavy. to uh, use a little light humor. Hopefully it doesn't offend anyone, but <laughs> being in uh, elder law and being a geriatric nurse in our profession, you deal with a lot of heavy stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes our coping mechanism is we have to make light of some things from mm -hmm. time to time. So a little crude, but a DNR is you are dead, right? We have walked in and mm -hmm. you are no longer with us. You have gone over to the other, to the side, other side and where whatever you believe happens over there, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. If someone walks in, and again, this is not in a hospital setting. This would be in your own home. This would be in an assisted living, independent living, memory care community. You are not breathing, heart's not beating. Do you want to be brought back from the dead right or do you want to continue your journey to the other side and that would be what the dnr it's not you're struggling and you need assistance you know you're Correct. having a active heart attack or you're having a stroke a dnr is irrelevant in that scenario because you're still alive you're just in jeopardy exactly exactly and i think that if you're admitted to the hospital they ask you to fill out a DNR form while mm -hmm. you're there. Um, Whether you want it or not. Correct, correct. The advanced directives is something that you have prior to even having any type of illness. It's just a part of your state planning packet yes. so that if something unfortunate were to happen to you, it's guidelines for your family to use as to what your desires are. Yeah, then you don't have people arguing, no, we want to keep mom on 
life support because we want to you know hang on Correct. even if doctors are saying it's not this is likely it. right the other side of the family is saying no we don't want to see her like this again if you have this form already taken care of if you've gone to see jasmine right. then mom is going to tell you what she wants it's not going to have to be between you know child a and child b Correct. And, uh, you know, another misconception is that it happens immediately um, when you have an advanced mm -hmm. directive. It doesn't, you know, oh, there's an advanced directive. Let's pull the plug. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not right. an immediate type situation. It is just essentially, like I said, it's a statement of desires for your family to use in the event um, that is necessary. Yeah. And that's going to come from a medical professional meeting with you if you are at that crossroads having to like think about that decision they're going to be advising hey we think this is what's happening are there advanced directives in place what does it say what does it not say correct correct all right so we'll move on now that i think we know what an advanced directive is to the dnr so the dnr the do not resuscitate form like we stated that is are you dead? Have you moved on? Would you like to come back? Yes or no. If you have it, um, if you say, yes, I am a do not resuscitate, that means I do not want um, someone to run code on you, do CPR, bring you back, get your heart beating again. If you are a full code, that means you do want CPR. So the do not resuscitate order if you elect to have that again there's no requirements totally personal decision mm -hmm. but if you do there are two different types in texas there is the traditional do not resuscitate order which you do in a hospital setting and then there is a second one in texas it is called an out of hospital do not resuscitate just because you selected a do not resuscitate while you were hospitalized, once you discharge from that hospital, that do not resuscitate does not apply any longer. It stays with that of, hospital. Yes, it stays with that hospital. So if you discharge like to a community um, at Sage Oak like mine, then you would have to then sign an out of hospital DNR. That would cover you <clears throat> in a, um, a more... Uh, private home setting. Mm -hmm. Anywhere outside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you explain the requirements? Because I know every time I've printed off a do not resuscitate order <laughs> for families that didn't have one in one and one, you can download it from the state website. They're very That's easy correct. to access, mm -hmm. but I would still recommend getting someone to look at it because there is a whole other sheet of rules. Correct. <laughs> and on how to fill it out and there's multiple options so it can be very confusing to people so can you talk about some of the ways that makes it a valid document on the options you have to so, execute it right so in texas we love rules yeah we do <laughs> we love rules um and some of the forms that we have in texas are kind of like a choose your own adventure and they want you to take the time to fill these out correctly and some things you have to check some things you have to strike out some things you have to sign some things have to have witnesses 
Some things have to have a notary attached to it. So it's very important that you follow all of the instructions that are included in the document. And if you have any questions as to how they're filled out, then definitely contact an attorney, preferably Dodson Legal Group, and we can walk <laughs> you through the signing procedures. When we do signings at our office, we make sure that we have a valid notary present. We have two witnesses who are there and competent. We make sure they haven't been out drinking all day to come and sign <laughs> your documents. Um, Good point. <laughs> um, yeah, that's you know one of the requirements. And we also you know make sure that there's a valid ID. If there's an issue with capacity, we perform a capacity evaluation there oh, okay. if necessary um, to make sure that the person is understands the nature of the documents that they're signing. So it's very important to make sure that the documents that you're signing when you're signing them comply with all of the local rules of the state that you're in and that it's being properly executed by a, a notary and witnesses who are not interested in uh, the documents that you're signing. So, uh, and I know you asked me specifically about the DNR, but I think it's important to kind of touch on all of the documents and make sure that all of the documents are oh, absolutely. signed with all the required formalities. Yeah, and I like that you pointed out competent, competent witness. Yes. Competent. Um, <laughs> it doesn't state competent witness on the <laughs> Texas document, but that's a good thing that they should add. So when you said that if there's a question of capacity, Correct. That you would have someone that could do an evaluation. Is that something that a family should notify you of prior to their arrival? Or do you always have that person on staff that could do that exam if it came up in the meeting that it became necessary? So, so that's a good question. So there's um, a couple of different capacity evaluations. So what we do, as because I'm not a doctor, I'm just a lawyer. I just do a simple basic capacity evaluation that's provided um, uh in the Texas Estates Code, you know, you ask certain things to make sure that that person has just kind of a general capacity. Like, uh, do you know who the president is? Do you know your birthday? Do mm -hmm. you know um, what day it is today? Like, those are just kind of basic questions. Okay. Now, there is something called a certified medical examination that is a more comprehensive medical evaluation that's required to be completed by a physician in order to determine capacity. Now, a certified medical examination is generally used in guardianship proceedings, and I'm sure you've probably seen them in your mm -hmm. line of work. And that is a more comprehensive where they ask whether or not a person is able to um, complete their, um, their daily living. Like, can you bathe? Yeah. Can you go to the bathroom by yourself? Can you cook your own dinner? Can you manage your own money? That's a more comprehensive evaluation that goes towards whether or not someone has capacity. And what I'm talking about... Um, when we do just kind of estate planning is we kind of just make sure that they have a basic capacity to sign documents and that sure. they understand the documents that they're signing if it's a question that comes up. Like if you were to come into my office, I probably wouldn't perform a capacity evaluation on you. But if someone came in and I had questions about their capacity, like if they were, you know, reviewing the documents and they didn't seem to be kind of understanding or they weren't asking the right questions or they appear to, you know, maybe a loved one came in with them and the loved one is the one that's kind of trying to dictate the whole proceedings, I would ask the loved one, you know, step outside, let me get to have a conversation with, um, you know, the person who's signing the documents and just kind of ask some of those basic questions. And if I have a question or concern about capacity, then I'd probably stop the um, the document ceremony and just say, hey, you might, we might be past the point yeah. 
of, uh, of a power of attorney and estate planning, and you may need to go see a doctor to get a more comprehensive evaluation done. That brings up something that I would consider a good tip in listening to this. Now, we are talking about all of this as elder care uh, documents. Truly, anyone, you don't have to be an elder or a senior citizen to get these documents in place. I would recommend everyone have them. But specifically, if you are a senior or bringing a senior in for these documents, like you were saying on the confusion, if someone has just recently had a surgical procedure and they've undergone anesthesia or maybe they have an infection of some sort, that can do a lot to the senior's mind. It can cloud a lot of thoughts where they're otherwise very clear. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can take seniors longer to kind of blow off all of that anesthesia and get back to their baseline. And surgeries can oftentimes trigger families to think it's time to start doing these documents. So if that's kind of where you are, you may want to consider doing these documents prior to a surgery when they are more clear or give it about a week after to that's make sure the yeah. competency is really there and really accurate and, you know, depicting how they normally are. Because that can be deceiving sometimes. It, it can be. And also sundowners, you know, yeah. um, with the elder clients, sometimes they're more alert in the beginning of the day. And they do know. It's not that they don't know. It's just they're cloudy. Exactly. Later. Exactly. Or if they've had like a strenuous day before, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was just in Los Angeles with my aunt and she's 86 <sighs> and we spent the day at uh, the world of Barbie. <laughs> oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> it was so much fun. We had such a good time. But, uh, you know, the next day, like she, while we were there, she was, you know, playing around with all the toys and she was posing in the Barbie, uh, um, Barbie boxes oh, and geez. we had such a good time. But the next day she, you know, she was like, she took her time. I don't think she got out of bed until 10, 11 o'clock and just, yeah. And so I noticed that, mm -hmm. you know, the next day she kind of ran out of energy. She was still alert. She still, you yeah. know, knew everything. She's still able to drive and do all her things. But for um, some of our seniors, you know, you, you need to make sure that if you're coming in with them later on um, in life instead of doing it earlier mm -hmm. on to make sure that it is a day where they, they're properly rested it's good time. and it's not going to write good time of day and that they're able to kind of, uh, you know, understand all these documents and sign the documents so that there's no question later yeah. on. Um, as to whether or not contested later. Exactly, exactly. So that brings us to the next document, which is probably the most common document that everyone knows about mm -hmm. and has heard about, which is your will. Oh, yeah. So talk to us about our will. What should be in a will? What should not be in a will? <laughs> your last will and testament should uh, include and identify the people that you want your stuff to go to. Uh, and also include people that you don't want your stuff to go to. If you Ooh. want to <laughs> disinherit Shade someone, in the exactly, wheel. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's the thing where you leave them with one dollar. <laughs> it happens because you specifically mention them and you give them exactly what you want them to have. Because if you don't mention them, then they can make the argument that, oh, they just forgot about me. Oh. So you want to identify who they are. Very good point. Leave them with a little bit of something and then move on to the next people. So... Uh, yes, you want to identify who you want your stuff to go to, who you don't want your stuff to go to, 
And you know that's that's pr that's pretty much it. And you don't really have to worry about how they're going to feel because you won't be here if exactly. you decided that you don't want it exactly. to go to someone. It's going to be tense in the room, but <laughs> you aren't going to have to deal with it anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so things in your will would be any of your like material possessions you've accumulated over Correct. your lifetime, um, real estate, real estate, land holdings. Mm -hmm. um, share stocks shares things of that nature exactly yes and um if you have a bank account what you can do with your bank account is instead of putting it in your will is you identify the beneficiary on your bank account so then it goes directly to them and it makes it a non-probate asset so the one thing about having a will is a will has to go through probate if you have a will you list everything in your will it has to go through probate you can't just take the will and record it in the county recorder's yep. office. Here we go. <laughs> and say, okay, I'm done. Give me my give me just my property. Slide this yeah, on. just, just <laughs> I, I no, it says it in the will, Mr. Bank. This, yeah. Give me my stuff. It's not how it works. That's so, an important step. I think a lot of people miss. They think mm -hmm. that just because it's designated in the will, that it's an it's automatic done. transfer. Yeah, it is not an automatic transfer. If something is designated in a will then um, you designate an executor who's the person who's authorized to distribute the assets in the will. So that executor is the one who takes that will, takes it down to the probate court, files it with the probate court, and then the judge has to make a decision as to whether or not the will is valid. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people sometimes think that their will is valid because they printed something offline and or they type something up and you know it may not be a valid will. Um, so that will goes to probate court. The probate is open. You have to announce to the world. Yeah. Well, generally, the, the state of Texas and the county that you're living in is this will is being probated. Here are the assets. If anybody has an interest in this estate, file a claim here. And so you also have to give notice to creditors. And if there's anybody that you owe money, such as your, your Chase account, your um, any credit cards, they're coming for They're it. coming for what's in the estate. Um, so, you know, probate is very formal. You mm -hmm. have to hire an attorney to go through probate. So having a will may not necessarily be your best option for managing and administering your estate. It is the most common, mm -hmm. um, is most commonly used. It does do what it says it does as long as it's appropriately uh, drafted and and filed and recorded and that's why you get an attorney to do it that's and why. don't just necessarily I mean I have I came from a very small town people hand wrote wills all the time and would put it in a coffee can and put it under their mattress if you don't have to do that take the option go to an attorney and get it done that's and right. avoid a whole lot of problem down the line the last document that um, we were going to cover is the TOD Transfer on death deed. Yes, yes, that's the one I think people probably know the least about. I've kind of been um, talking about it a little bit to people since we met uh -huh. uh, before just to see, hey, have you ever heard of this document? Most people had not. Really? Mm -hmm. Really? Okay. Well, um, Todd, transfer on death deed can be your best friend if you own your own real estate. A lot of times the probates we get are because married couples are under the unmistaken belief that their real property transfers to them automatically on the death of one spouse. 
that doesn't happen. Yeah, because you think Texas is a 50-50 state. Uh -huh. We bought the house together. It's community We're on the property. Mortgage together. So obviously, if one is gone, it goes to the other. It goes to the other. And nope. It, and it, it does go, but it's not automatic. There has to be some mechanism to transfer that interest from one spouse to the other, whether it's a will, whether it's a transfer on death deed, or whether it's an um, affidavit of airship or some type of other small estates. Uh, affidavit, some other administration that needs to take place or some other document that needs to be filed that effectively causes that transfer to happen, mm -hmm. um, especially with blended families. Um, with blended families in the state of Texas, yeah. if there's no will, and when I say blended families, I mean um, like one spouse has children from a previous marriage, that spouse's community property share doesn't automatically go to the spouse. It automatically gets divided equally amongst their children in the state of Texas. Remember, mm -hmm. we're in Texas. Um, so and I would assume that's a large population. It is. That are in blended families at this point. It, it is. And, um, you know, uh, I have a story about an, an elderly man who for he's living in his house for over 50 years and his wife passed away. And when he came to do his estate plan, I had to explain to him that he owns his 50% share of the house and the other 50% is equally divided amongst his six children. So, and he was just, he was, he was floored. He was like, no, that's my house. I paid for it. I worked mm -hmm. and I paid the mortgage and I paid it off and that's my house. I said, it is half your house. Um, his, yeah. his wife had predeceased him. So uh, a transfer on death deed effectively kind of skips over that step and it turns your real property into a pay on death benefit, kind of like an insurance policy. Like when someone passes away, you go to the insurance and you say, mm -hmm. here's the death certificate and they cut you a check. With a transfer on death deed, you do it prior to the death of the person. You can't do it after. Um, you, you create this document. It's called a transfer on death deed. You record it in the deed records and it essentially puts everyone on notice who you want to own your real property or your share, your interest in this real property if something happens to you. And so it kind of streamlines the process because then it turns your house into a non-probate asset. The house can effectively become transferred um, without having to go through probate. So yeah, needless to say, very important document. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that I've spoken to are not particularly aware of that one, but it can save a lot of conflict, especially with blended family scenarios where there's multiple children. Mm -hmm. Just just avoid the mess for everybody. Just right. have it done. Make it so easy. If people can come to you, uh -huh. schedule an appointment, and they want to get their power of attorney, mm -hmm. they want to get an advance directive done, want to talk about if they do or do not wish to have a do not resuscitate order, the DNR, mm -hmm. and get their will, and they can talk about that Todd or the transfer Correct. on death deed. That would be a pretty good start. Now, we could go into a lot more on each of these documents. If you want to know more on that, though, you're going to make an appointment with Jasmine at her office That's in correct. Denton, Texas. That's we right. will have uh, the contact information down below. If you guys want to continue to get more information, hopefully we're going to have Jasmine back on a future show. I'd love to, yeah. And we are going to ask that you please go to YouTube, like and subscribe to Senior mm -hmm. Living Simplified. That way you don't miss any of the information that comes out. And of course, as always, we are sponsored by Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. We are Boutique Assisted Living and Memory Care. And if you know of someone that is looking for an option, 
perhaps doesn't know what that option is about, please contact us. Email me at dentoninfo at thesageoak.com. It'll be right here at the bottom of the screen. And we look forward to talking to you guys next time.